In this series of lessons on what I believe and why, we come to this statement today. I believe in making disciples. I believe in making disciples. I believe that's what the church is supposed to be about. I believe that that incorporates everything that we do and informs every aspect of our decisions and of our ministry. There are a lot of things that we do, and I think either directly or indirectly, they are going to connect with the call to make disciples. On the outlines we have, there are several scripture passages that we might call the Great Commission there in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in Acts 1. And in Matthew 28, Jesus tells his followers, his disciples, it doesn't stop with you. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey and observe everything that I have commanded to you. And I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples is our call. That's what Jesus gave us to do. There's a challenging quote that I'd like to share with you from the wonderful author Dallas Willard. He wrote, The greatest issue facing the world today is whether those who are identified as, quote, Christians will become disciples. A year or two ago, I was at Harding University for uh, their lectureship uh, back when we did those things long ago. And uh, it was a great and wonderful week of lessons, and the book of Acts was the subject. And one of the lessons really challenged me because the speaker was talking about the importance of the word disciple. And he encouraged those of us who were teachers and preachers in the group to use that term more. And I've tried to do that over the last year or two. You may not have noticed that, but I have actually tried to deliberately use the term disciple and not specifically just the term Christian. You might ask, well, what's the difference, Bill? Well, for some, there may not be any difference at all. But it seems to me that the term Christian is a term that we apply to people who have been saved, to people who have believed in Jesus, repented of their sins, confessed that faith to others, and have been baptized into Jesus Christ, and now they're Christians. And so there's a moment in time where they become a Christian. Disciple is a different word. Disciple is taken from the word you might recognize, discipline. And those terms revolve around the idea of learning. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a student. A person, I believe, at one point in time becomes a Christian. And I believe that that is when they have been baptized and they've died to sin. They've been buried with Christ through baptism into death and they've been raised to live a new life. The term disciple doesn't really point to one moment in time. The term disciple reminds us that we are constantly learning and growing and maturing, that we never stop being a student of Jesus Christ and of his word. 
It's interesting to me that the term Christian, as you may know, is used only three times in the New Testament. Only three in all of the New Testament. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch of Syria, that great mission evangelistic-minded church in Acts chapter 11. King Agrippa looks at Paul after hearing his story and his call to become a Christian. And Agrippa says, do you think that in just a short time you could persuade me to become a Christian, Acts 26? And then in 1 Peter 4, the apostle Peter says, look, if anyone is going to suffer, let them suffer as a Christian. Don't suffer because you've broken the law. Don't suffer because you've hurt somebody. If there's going to be persecution and suffering in your life, let it be because of your faith in Christ. Let it be because you are a Christian. Those are the only three times that term is used. But the term disciple is used over 260 times in the New Testament. One little caveat or asterisk with that is this. It is only used in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. It's used there a lot, but it's not used after that, which I think is interesting, and maybe you can come up with a theory as to why that is. But it's amazing to me that there's so much in the New Testament about being a disciple and making disciples, and the disciples of Jesus Christ, the students that worked with him and lived with him and watched him and ministered with him. They were disciples. And then in the book of Acts, the New Testament church, those who are followers of Christ are called disciples of Jesus. I believe in making disciples. I think that's a part of what the church is called to be and to do. And as the title indicates, I think that means that we share our faith. And we share our faith sometimes with words and sometimes without words. First of all, sharing your faith without words. Sharing your faith without words. I think this is actually where it starts. This is something that should come natural to every single one of us. It is living out our faith right in the big fat middle of the world in which we live, right in front of everyone. We live out the teachings of scripture. We don't do that perfectly. We don't do that flawlessly. We don't do that sinlessly, but we do that faithfully. We do that trusting in Jesus and trusting that he will use our lives as imperfect as they are to help other people become disciples. Jesus, you remember in Matthew chapter 5, talked about us letting our lights shine. Let your light shine, he said, before others so that they may see your what? Your good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. Not hear your message, but see your good deeds. I think as we'll see in just a moment, that also involves with words. But this is where it starts, and that's what Jesus specifically says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let them see your good deeds, and through that, come to know the Father and come to know me. Jesus, in John chapter 9, a passage we looked at in our Family Life Center class this morning, came across a man who was born blind, and he healed him. He gave him his sight. That was a great 
demonstration of the power of God and faith that could be called for in Jesus Christ. But I do want us to look at a few passages of Scripture today in the book of 1 Peter, starting with these words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And the thing that always amazes me about 1 Peter, and you've heard me say this many times, is that Peter in 1 and 2 Peter is writing to individuals who are on the bottom of the social scale. They had zero power in their society. None. None. They were immigrants. They were there because they had fled the land of Palestine because of the persecution likely begun by the Apostle Paul himself before he became a Christian while he was Saul of Tarsus. They went everywhere preaching the word, Acts chapter 8 says. And one of the places some of them went and then later Paul and Barnabas would go to on what we call Paul's first mission journey was in some of those northern areas of modern-day Turkey. And Peter writes to them, and they're there, they're immigrants, they're exiles, they really have no, no real place in society. And yet Peter tells them to share their faith. Well, how do they go about doing that? Well, first of all, they go about doing that without words, by their lives. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I wonder that as Peter wrote those words, if he was consciously and deliberately thinking of those words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus told him and his fellow disciples to do exactly the same thing. Let your light shine, so that others may, through your good deeds, glorify the Father. Peter calls on others to do exactly the same. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing to individuals and to families who are very much like some of our families, where you have one spouse who is a faithful Christian and one who is not. Or a parent who is a faithful Christian and a grandparent or an adult child who is not. Or a child who is a faithful Christian and yet their parents and other family members are not. And I think in all of those situations, these words from 1 Peter 3 that are specifically directed to Christian wives of non-Christian husbands, I think they have applications in all of those related situations. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Granted, we don't call on wives, and I don't think Peter is calling on wives to submit to an abusive husband. That is over the line. And I've shared about that before and will share again. That is not what this passage is saying. But what is it saying? Well, it's calling on all of us to live lives of purity and reverence 
so that those we live with, those we are closest with, our family members who don't share our faith, so that they will see by our godly Christian lives of reverence and purity, and they can be won over to Christ even without a word. It's an amazing statement. And then it leads to this passage of Scripture in 1 Peter 4. Sometimes they will come across and they will see that and they will want to know more, as we'll see in just a moment. Sometimes not so much. 1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery or sexual immorality, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And now note verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. They will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Rather than seeing their good deeds, seeing their lives of purity and reverence, these people simply heaped abuse on them. They made fun of them. They perhaps persecuted them physically and emotionally, causing them physical and emotional harm because of their faith. And that is exactly what would inspire Peter later on in chapter 4, as we said, to tell them, look, if you are suffering, let it be because of your faith. Let it be as a Christian. Here he says not everybody's going to respond to your life of good deeds and reverence and purity and faith. And for some of them, they just may say, I'm not interested at all. But for some of them, they may make you pay a price. Peter says, be willing to do that. Even though they're surprised at your faithful life, your life of purity and reverence and faithfulness, and heap abuse on you because you don't live the way they live, your values are different. And they're threatened by that. But you don't have to be. Whatever comes from that, even if it means suffering and sacrifice, you know that it is the Lord God that you are serving, and that one day they too will stand before him and will give an account for how they treated you. The incredible thing about Jesus and his suffering that Peter acknowledges and refers to in 1 Peter 2 is that he was willing to entrust himself to the one who judges justly, and we can too. We don't have to have vindication in this life. Peter affirms, Jesus affirmed, Paul affirmed, and they also lived it. That sometimes we won't. Sometimes we will suffer. But we are called to share our faith, first of all, without words. You see, making disciples is a process. It is a process. And I don't think we've stressed that enough. Sharing your faith is a process. Making disciples is a process. And it is a process that typically begins without words. And I know it's strange to hear a preacher say that who is all about the words, right? And lots of them. 
But it begins most of the time without words. It begins most of the time with your faithful life of reverence and purity lived out in front of them. It begins with the faithful life. It begins with the good deeds. It begins with you demonstrating your faith in nonverbal ways. And that can be done in a lot of different ways. It can be done by bringing your Bible with you when you go to work or when you go to school. It can begin by you just very humbly, considerately reading your Bible on your lunch break or some other break. And not pushing anybody, not sharing that with anybody, just reading it right in front of them. Somewhere a cross or, or some kind of pendant that, that has that. Others have sayings in their homes such as from Joshua 24, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. Others have bumper stickers on their cars. I love Jesus or John 3.16 or something like that. But one little caution, if you are going to have that on your car, please be careful and cautious of how you drive. (laughs) Please. We should do that anyway, of course. Making disciples is a process, and that process doesn't begin with a sit-down Bible study taking them to Acts 2.38 and other passages. It begins with you living the Christian life right in front of them and having an influence and letting them, the non-believers, see by your good deeds that there is something more to your life. Making disciples is a process that typically begins by sharing your faith without words, but it doesn't end there. It cannot end there. If it ends there, all they know is that you're a kind of cool, good person, and that's it, and that's not enough. Sharing your faith without words leads to sharing your faith with words. Sharing your faith with words. We mentioned John 9 and Jesus healing this man born blind. And in the midst of that healing, he says, I am the light of the world. While I'm in this world, I am the light of the world. But he had already said that in John chapter 8, interacting with with the Jewish leaders. He had said one of those great I am statements, I am the light of the world. And he had also said to them why his testimony about himself is worthwhile and valuable and appropriate. And John 3, interacting with Nicodemus, the Jewish uh, leader and member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, Jesus specifically told him, Nicodemus, unless you are born again of water and the spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He told him that. And Mark chapter 5 is that great interaction with Jesus and this man who was filled with demons. And he asked him what their name was, and he said, Legion, because we are many. And Jesus healed the man, and the man was so appreciative and grateful that he said, I want to go with you. Take me with you. But Jesus told him in Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, you go home. You're not coming with me. You go home to your own people and you tell them what God has done in your life. I got to admit, I think sometimes for some of us, it might be easier to go to a place where nobody knows us and tell them that story. But let me tell you, 
If it's out of your comfort zone, that's okay. Jesus has promised to be with you. You tell them. Just like this man told them, you just tell them your story. You tell them what Jesus has done in your life. You tell them the difference he has made for you. But you tell them that. You share your faith with words. That may involve uh, right in our local area. That may involve other parts of the world. A wonderful story of good news of one of the mission efforts that we continue to support through Bicca that you can read about in uh, today's bulletin and see pictures of individuals being baptized into Christ. But other times it's the message for most of us it's the message that Jesus gave this man in Mark 5. You go home. You go to your workplace. You go to your friends at school. You go to your neighbors. And you tell them. You tell them what God has done in your life. Sharing our faith with words. We are ambassadors of Christ, Second Corinthians 5 says. As if God were making his appeal through us. We are in the ministry of reconciliation, Paul writes. And so he says, we tell other people, be reconciled to God. You be reconciled to God. It reminds us of that great statement from 2 Corinthians 2 that Matt shared with us today as we gathered around the table. I believe, therefore I, what? Speak. I believe, therefore, I'm willing to speak. I'm willing to share that humbly, yes. Uh, faultlessly, no. <laughs> We're going to make mistakes when we do that. And that's okay because the power's not in us. The power's in God. And we remember Jesus telling us to make disciples, but we also remember him telling us, I will be with you every moment, every step. What a great, great thing. And it's a reminder of what our shepherd, Ken Culpepper, shared earlier. In that prayer that, that God's will would be done and that some way, somehow or another, we could be a part of that. You may be a part of that through this. Through sharing your faith without words or perhaps even sharing your faith with words. We turn back to that great passage in 1 Peter 2. We read verses 11 and 12, but listen to verses 9 and 10 and read along. 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are called to declare his praises. We're called to tell people that we have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. And we would like nothing better than for them to answer that call as well. It starts by sharing our faith without words, but it doesn't end there. And that's where 1 Peter 3 verses 15 and 16 come in. Having lived that life of good deeds before the pagans... As he says in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Earlier he had told them, live such good lives among the pagans that they'll see your good deeds just as Jesus said and glorify the Father. How does that happen, Bill? Well, it starts without words, and then they come to you, Peter says. Not everybody will. Some of them will only punish you, but some may not. And some who see the difference in your life, they will say, man, I need some of that. I don't know what it is about her or about him, but I know I need it. And they may come to you, and Peter says, you be ready to answer. You be ready to tell your story. Not everybody will, but every once in a while, someone may come to you in some way or another and try to find out how you can live in such a difficult time, in a difficult world, how you can live with such hope. And they get to that point because you have shared your faith without words. And now it's time to share your faith with words. Be ready to tell them. Paul tells the Ephesians that we are to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4 verse 15, it needs to always be the truth and it must always be done in love and humility and consideration and respect. Absolutely. But we must speak. We must speak. You may or may not remember, but at the beginning of this year, we had this wonderful plan, our 2020 vision. Do you remember that? (laughs) Before pandemic, before uh, COVID-19 hit this country, it was already out there. We had such great plans, and here was our 2020 vision to look up growing spiritually, to reach in, growing in love and unity, to grow out, spreading the gospel, increasing the kingdom, making disciples, yes, even growing numerically. And God has taught us a lot of lessons this year. (laughs) But I believe that 2020 vision is still appropriate. It's different than it was in January, for sure. (laughs) And yet it's the same. I think the pandemic has given us an even greater opportunity to do the first two of these. To look up and grow spiritually. Lord knows that we have prayed to God perhaps more this year than maybe you prayed in a long time. To reach in, to be considerate of one another, our, our wonderful church family and others that are watching us online and, and are, are unable to be here just yet. We pray for you and we miss you and, and you miss us and you pray for us. And what a wonderful thing that is. We have, stri- we have tried to connect as much as we can. And I think that that's because of this virus that we're going through, but the virus has hampered our efforts to do the third of these. And I want to tell you this morning that that need not be the case. And here's why. Who have you invited to join in our online services and classes this year? We have more than we've ever had. Facebook classes, Zoom studies, Donnie Carnathan is still doing a Zoom study. God bless him. (laughs) I'm still doing Facebook studies. Our online studies are still going strong. 
Our worship services are online every Sunday morning and then on our archives. Did you know that there are over 30 recordings on our archive link of Bible study sermons and worship services? And did you know that there are over 30 of those just since September 1st? No wonder we're so tired, Davy. Good grief. My 2020 sermons, my Facebook studies on Matthew, Acts, and now the Psalms, they're all there. Our worship services are there, and my sermons go back to July of 2016. <laughs> I've been here one year, and all of them are on there, which basically means two things. Number one, I can never run for public office. Because if they want to find something that I said that I shouldn't have said, something that I shouldn't have said out loud, it's there. (laughs) They can find it, no problem. Number two, and of course, much more important, there are plenty of studies that you can be involved in with one of your friends, one of your coworkers, one of your family members, fellow students. And... You can do that without either of you having to leave your house, without either other of you having to get out of your sweatpants. You can do that and be a part of a Bible study together. And if you are comfortable coming to our worship service, and others are too, who have you invited to come to our Bible classes or morning worship services that we are now having in person? Who have you invited to watch along with you and then contact later in the day on Sunday or that week? What did you think? What did you think? And we have been meeting in person since May the 10th. Granted, the numbers have gone up and down a little. But we've been meeting every Sunday right here since May the 10th. Next Sunday, the Sunday before the election, I will have the message, I believe in prayer. I figure two days before the election, that's probably the right lesson. (laughs) That may be one you want to invite someone to watch along with you or to come and be a part of if you're here. Sharing your faith without words, sharing your faith with words, and then lastly today, sharing your faith is an act of, well, faith. It's an act of faith. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, God says, look, the rain that I send down on the earth, it accomplishes everything I want it to accomplish. And the same is true of my word. My word will not return to me without accomplishing the purpose I have for it. So you share it because that's the promise of God. Paul talks to the Corinthians and he talks about himself and a couple of other preachers, and one of them is Apollos. And Apollos, as best we can tell, is probably a better speaker than the Apostle Paul. They both worked in Corinth. And Paul acknowledges that, and he says in chapter 3, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who made it grow. It's God who gave the increase. So can we just trust God to do his part? And let us be committed to doing our part? Let us be committed to planning and to watering and to helping God do his part by doing our part. And so Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, I am going to do everything I can by any possible means so that some can be saved. Peter writes and reminds us that it's, the world is still around because God's patience. 
because he's not on a timeline. And so he's given everybody another chance to repent. But one day, Peter says, that day of the Lord will come. That's for sure. And so as Jesus said, we do his work while it is still day. I love this quote from Randy Harris, and it's so true. He says this, it is really hard to deal with a God who has no concept of time. (laughs) It is really hard to deal with a God who has no concept of time. He goes on, because for a lot of us, the question is not how, the question is not why, the question is when. When, O Lord? And I think that's right, and I think that's how we measure sometimes whether we should put in a good word for Jesus or not, as Milton Jones has said. And we want to see results. And God says, patience, Bill. I'm doing my job. You just keep doing yours. We'll be fine. It's really hard to deal with the God who has no concept of time. I want him to hurry up. I'm used to clicking on something and it magically appearing. And if it doesn't, then calling somebody like Terry Frick. (laughs) Patience, Bill. I've got it. You should have it too. You just keep doing what you're doing. You keep putting that word out there. You keep living that life, sharing your faith without words. In the midst of people you work with, in the midst of your family members, midst of your community. Terry Rush has said we should be letting the Spirit of God do God's work in God's time, using us along the way however he sees fit. And that is so liberating. It takes the pressure off. You realize that God is going to do his work in his time through the good that you do. And yes, just as Peter says, when the time is right and you're called upon, be ready to answer. Be ready to share your faith with words. But trust in God. Trust him enough to share your faith without words and with words. So I've said throughout this sermon, I believe in making disciples, but I want to end with this thought. I believe in being disciples. Isn't that where it starts? It starts with you and me, being disciples, first of all. Being that follower of Christ, that student of Christ, that learner who doesn't have it all together just yet, but we're trying to be on that path. I believe in being disciples, sharing our faith without and with Words. That whole quote from Dallas Willard that I started with is this. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who, have, who by profession or culture are identified as Christians, that they will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence, every aspect of your life is a part of the process of making disciples. You and those God puts in your life. May Jesus' disciples today ring the message out. We can help you do that today. Come.